ACNFers. I'm bringing back the exchange of uh, written review for editing and or coaching. If you leave a review, written review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, I will edit and coach up a piece of your work of up to 2,000 words. When your review publishes, send a screenshot to creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com and we'll start a dialogue. Also, this is for new reviews posting from December 2023 to when I decide to end this promotion. It's like a $100 value, so if I were you, I would totally do it. Also, here's my shout-out to Athletic Brewing. It's my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. Uh, for those who might take part in, say, dry January, this is a great option. If you visit athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount. I don't get any money. Merely celebrating a great product. Skip the hangover, man. Skip it. Probably when I was about a quarter of the way through the book, maybe, or a third of the way through the book, where you've written a lot and you feel you've gotten, you're got, you you know, you're fully in it, but it just feels like there's so much left, you know, and you just wonder how on earth you're going to get all of it onto the page. CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. We're getting down to the end of the year, man, aren't we? It's kind of crazy. This CNF Friday marks four months till my book deadline. I've written more than 70,000 words. I will officially start reading some of it. Soon, I'm only about halfway through the story, so there was a moment at the start where I didn't know if I could reach 85,000 words, my contractually obligated minimum. Now I'm almost sure to blow past 100,000. Ah, good problem to have. I mean, eventually I'm going to run out of material, right? Today's guest is Lauren Grush. This is a fun one. This is a good one. You know what her beat is? Outer space. Lauren is a space reporter for Bloomberg, previously with The Verge. She's the author of The Six, the untold story of America's first women astronauts. It's published by Scribner Book Company. It's a spectacular book about centering women in space, a goal of Lauren's. And it was the bravery and ambition of these women, Sally Ride among them, that blazed a trail to the cosmos. Hey, you know the deal. Head to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the monthly Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. There, you can subscribe to the newsletter or don't. It's up to you. First of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. You can also consider going to patreon.com slash cnfpod if you want to throw in a few bucks into the CNF and coffers. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods. Or not. It's up to you. I'm the only host in the world who so much as gives you the option of saying no. That said, you should totally subscribe. The pod has seen a nice little bump in downloads over the past couple months, so we must be doing something right. What that is, I have no idea. But it's not nothing, and I barely use social media. There's a lesson there. Threading or tweeting or whatever is no substitute for just shutting the F up and doing work that's worth talking about. I might riff on that in the parting shot. All right. In this episode, Lauren talks about what it was like to experience zero-G, setting mini-deadlines along the way, centering women in space, and the twang, man. The twang. All right, 
Keep it locked, CNFers. Here we go. Riff. space which is uh, a pretty amazing neighborhood to cover and at what point did you kind of stumble upon that the six uh needed a better treatment and needed some attention yeah so my common refrain is that you know as a space reporter I have been oftentimes especially as a woman space reporter I've often been the only woman in the room reporting on space and it can be a very intimidating experience. And there've just been many times where I've traveled for work or gone to various launches or space events and just felt very supremely out of place and, you know, very lonely because I've, you know, just been in a room filled with men. And, uh, there's been a lot of times where I've kind of wanted to run out of the room screaming, but I, you know, try to suppress that impulse. And I'm glad that I have because I've had a really great career. And over time, I've definitely met uh, some wonderful women in this industry. And uh, more and more women are reporting on space. And that has been a really great thing for me because I, you know, I feel like we have a strong bond. I I have a strong bond with other women in this industry. Uh, But it's also made reporting about women in space very important to me. And I very much try to center women's voices when I can. It's it's still really tough just because, you know, when you're a reporter working on deadline, you usually try and find the first person that will talk to you. And, uh, you know, you it sometimes takes extra work to make sure you find a, a woman to who is a free and available to chat with you. So that is something you consciously have to work towards. Uh, but yes, like I said, you know, when I can feature women in space stories. I really love to do that. And I'd always really, I'd always wanted to write a book. And, uh, I, I noticed that, you know, there's a lot of books out there that focus on men, especially rich men who are, you know, propelling the future of commercial space transportation. And those books are great and necessary and wonderful, but I just didn't want to write another one of them. And so I've, you know, I was looking around for, the women who came first, you know, in, in the space field, I initially it was, you know, who were the first space female reporters in this industry? And then it kind of transitioned into, okay, well, who are the first women in space in general? And when I discovered this group of women of these six women, you know, I really didn't know much about them. I knew of Sally, uh, but I couldn't say that I knew much about Sally's life or her experiences. Um, And so I really thought this was a great opportunity to, you know, kind of follow that passion of mine, that mission that I've set for myself by centering women in space and also educating myself and educating others while giving the rest of this group a a bit of a spotlight that I didn't think they'd had before. What would you identify as the most illuminating moment of your research and your reporting on this book? Well, there are a few things that I like to point to. One of the big ones is the selection process for the first American woman to fly. Um, I probably had this preconceived notion uh, that it was going to be this really rigorous, objective process. And learning that it was not (laughs) was a bit surprising. I probably shouldn't be surprised. You know, when it comes to selecting people, it is still a subjective thing. But, you know, I, I thought it was going to be this 
you know, they would they were going to type everybody's attributes into some kind of 80s computer and it was going to spit out the right person to fly on that mission. And the truth is, it really just came down to one man, George Abbey, who was the director of flight operations at the time. And I was enamored with his role and how all of the astronauts kind of gravitated toward him because they knew he was the guy that could put them into space. And so it was it was definitely a trip to learn about, you know, how that selection process worked back then. And, it, you know, this to be truthful, the selection process for astronauts is still a bit opaque, at least for me as a journalist these days. You know, I they don't really lay out how they do it or why they've picked certain people. So it was great to be able to talk to George and and learn about his process and also the astronauts that that were selected by the, him and and how they felt about the process too. So that was that was one of the more illuminating things I learned and also it was, it was fun to learn about and to write about. Yeah, and specifically with Abby as well was sometimes the selection process was merely being on his radar and oftentimes that came down to like happy hour at the bar on Friday. And and if you weren't in that orbit, right? Yeah. That's what the astronauts thought anyway, you know, that so they they were, but that was the thing that was told to me about George is he wasn't a man of many words and he never told you where he stood. And so there, you know, the astronauts were concocting all sorts of reasons for why he picked somebody or why he selected somebody. And so, yeah, they thought maybe just being front of mind was enough. And so then whenever he, there were happy hours, uh, you know, they made it a point to, to be there and drinking with him, but who knows if that actually helped. I mean, when I spoke with George, he said there really wasn't any secret sauce to it. You know, he simply matched people who had the right attributes and skills to the the mission requirements. (laughs) So to him, it wasn't that secretive, but you know, to others, it might not have been so, so transparent. Nice. And and to back up a little bit, sometimes I like to get into the sort of the nuts and bolts of how how like the story or the book in this case kind of came together and maybe what your original, let's just say, vision for it in book proposal form, how that looked and then how that changed as your reporting unfolded. Yeah, so I would describe the proposal as like the most rigorous book report that I've ever written in my whole life. <laughs> um, <laughs> we didn't do a sample chapter, but it really was just kind of a, a really succinct. I mean, it was it wasn't succinct. It was like ten thousand words or something like that. But it was very much a condensed version of what I thought the book was going to be and who I thought these women were. And um, while some of it was accurate. I learned that some of it was very not accurate. So I'm glad that I spent the time to really dive deeper and to learn more about the women and what they've actually said on certain subjects. You know, for instance, I was under the impression that, you know, Judy was much more upset about Sally being picked first than she was. And so, you know, I learned that and I massaged that as I got to the book writing process. And then In terms of my process, you know, I think I was a little intimidated when I first got started because I felt like there was just so much research to do that I spent a lot of time researching uh, and interviewing and going through the archives before I started writing. I think that was probably some, that'll probably be something I do differently if I write a book again, 
just because um, it really prolonged getting started and then it kind of pushed everything back. And then I felt like I was kind of playing catch up towards the end. But then really what helped a lot, what helped kind of jumpstart the whole writing process is I put together a pretty rigorous outline uh, in terms of where I saw the chapters going. And it definitely was very different from the proposal that I had come up with just because of what I had learned. And But then once I had that backbone of the outline of how I saw the chapters being laid out, that gave me kind of the the courage and the confidence to really start writing because then I felt like I had these bones, you know, to to start putting meat on. Um, and so that was that was the process and, and from getting started and, and really kind of going into overdrive. How much time did you give yourself to write it? Oh, gosh. Um, well, naively, I gave myself six months. Um, <laughs> and Well, I had six months of book leave from my job at The Verge. So that was my timeline. Um, I don't recommend that. <laughs> um, I And also, like I said, I spent about three of those months researching and interviewing and, you know, really diving deep into the, the story before I got started. And so that really left about three months to write. And when I was very clearly not close to being done, I asked for an additional three months off. I was granted that uh, I got a lot done, but that still was not enough to to get it done. And so I spent a good chunk of time. I returned to work after, what, so it was nine months. And then I spent a really good chunk of time working my day job, which is, you know, a space reporter, and then working nights and weekends on the book. And I'll, I'll be honest, it was really mostly weekends. I, I'm just not one of those people that can work, you know, all day on space and then think about another space related thing for another few hours. It was just, I was kind of emotionally drained and mentally exhausted by that point. So I really kind of saved it for the weekend, but that's also pretty brutal too. You know, one thing I've learned through, uh, being a full-time reporter is how necessary breaks are and how having that weekend time to rest, you know, as much as I love working, I also have learned, I really do love not working. And I mean that in the nicest way. I mean, it's, it's just, it's balance and you need it. Every person needs it, you know, otherwise my work isn't going to be as sharp and as good. So, um, it was a very stressful time, but you know, it was just one of those moments in life that you kind of have to get through and I got through it and I'm, I feel really happy with how everything turned out. What would you identify maybe as your dark night of the soul when it came to the writing of the book? <laughs> the dark night of the soul. Oh yeah. Wow. I love that because I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I would say, I want to say it was like, probably when I was about a quarter of the way through the book, maybe, or a third of the way through the book where you've written a lot and you feel you've gotten, you're got, you're, you know, you're fully in it, but it just feels like, there's so much left, you know, and you just wonder how on earth you're going to get all of it onto the page. I think that was, there was those were some moments there where I, <laughs> I spent a lot of dark nights, you know, crying and, you know, just hoping I could figure it out. And then also, um, a lot of the times I, 
I don't know, maybe you can back me up here, but I describe the book process as kind of like, it's definitely like running a marathon, even though I've never run a marathon, but I imagine it's what like running a marathon is like. And then also just like a series of wins and losses. So one day you're on top of the world because you've spoken to somebody that you absolutely needed to speak to. And they gave you all of this great information that you would not have had otherwise. And then the next moment someone declines an interview or you just can't find that detail that you need. And then you're kind of spiraling in that pit of despair for a little bit. So that was, I feel like during the early stages of, um, research and interviews and stuff like that, there are definitely some moments where I had like, I would have these great weeks where I'm like, yeah, this book is going to turn out great. And then I have another week where I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to finish this book without talking to this person or this person. Um, but ultimately those moments force you to be creative, right? So when you do have that loss where you were expecting to talk to someone or you were expecting to get this document or whatever, you find another way around it. And I think that ultimately made the book stronger is because, you know, you don't rely on that thing you thought you were going to get. So that was, that was, those were kind of the pits of despair, the soul pits of despair. I don't remember how you said it. Yeah. (laughs) Dark soul, dark night of the soul. And yeah, (laughs) today I, um, I had been dragging my feet on a particular source to call because it was just going to be a Titanic one to talk to. And I was just like, I, I have a tremendous not like a diagnose anxiety, but I'm not, I don't like making phone calls. I don't like making cold calls. It's just, I'm not I wired agree. that way. And uh, this one was a big one. And I'm a reporter. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I'm just like, I fucking hate it. And, and so I finally was like, you know what, Brendan, buck up, call the guy. And uh, I do call him and it's, and, uh, and he's just like, I can't, you know, I, I just can't talk. You know, I can't talk about yeah. it. And I was just like. Oh man, and that just happened today, and that was like a big, like I, I kind of need, I don't, I, I need the guy, <laughs> I, I need, I yeah. need this guy, and the, it was just such a, a punch to the stomach, and I was like, okay, well, I think there might be a workaround, and I have some other advocates uh, that I've been, uh, that I've spoken to for the book I'm working on, who might be able to lobby for me a bit better. And, um, mm-hmm. and so it, it I, the door isn't totally closed, but it is kind of closed. And I'm just like, yeah, to your point, you got to find maybe other ways to be creative, work around it in some capacity. Yeah. It's just, but it is kind of demoralizing and you got to kind of hang your head for a little bit, but then get back on the horse. If it means anything, I know that feeling very well after this process and, You know, another thing that I think makes it worse is that you're all alone (laughs) in this, (laughs) in this experience. So it's, it's, you can explain, you know, what, what happened to other folks, but they don't have that pressure to, to complete this project like you do. So no one really understands that gut punch feeling that comes with it. So yeah, it's, you're really kind of, not only are you dealing with this, but you can't really relate to anybody about it either. But maybe you can call me, I guess, and I'll, I'll, right. I'll be able to, to commiserate with you. Yes. <laughs> you just, <laughs> you know, you, you just fed the geese and now the geese aren't going to leave you alone. I, I, I yeah. apologize. Oh, no. Lord. No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, well, you also brought up a point earlier about just uh, kind of like that 
that tremendous feeling of overwhelm too, especially when you've given, you probably, it sounds like you had a pretty short deadline based on uh, just on the time you gave yourself to write and the fact of the, a lot of the research wasn't done. So when you were in those moments of overwhelm of like, oh my God, like there's still so much archival stuff to do. And then I got to find these, I got to find these phone numbers and call these people. And then, oh shit, like I got to start writing at some point. It's uh, yeah. how, how did you start to get your head around it, corral it? And that way you were still <laughs> rowing in the right direction. Yeah. So I kind of gave myself mini deadlines within each day. So for instance, uh, I had a mentor who said to set a goal of writing a thousand words a day. And then once you hit that limit, even if you have more to write, you know, save it for the next day. So that way you feel like the next day you're already jumping off from a great place, you know, don't try and overextend yourself each day. So that was kind of one trick that I tried to adhere to. And then also I tried to give myself time off when I could. I do have one kind of crazy story where I was, it was the week before I was supposed to go back to work for The Verge. And I was just in a pit of despair because I was so not done with the book, you know, and I had, I had kind of created this crazy deadline. It was like, okay, I'm going to finish Sally's chapter. I'm going to finish Judy's chapter and I, and I will do it if I can do a chapter a week, you know, and which was just an impossible task. Um, and so I was nowhere near to being done. And so I could either kill myself in that last week to try and get as much done as possible, or I could just kind of relax. And so I actually ran away to my friend's place. Uh, they have at the time had an inn in Alabama. And so I, I just kind of escaped for a little bit because I knew nothing good was going to come of me trying to kill myself to get that job done, you know, in this crazy deadline beforehand. So, you know, it was just kind of maybe give myself a break and reset, figure out what it's like to go back to work and then figure out how to move forward from there. I love how you said a moment ago about the the book writing being being like a, a, a marathon and there are the wins and losses along the way. And I think there's a lot of threads to pull on that I think are really astute that you, that you brought up, especially let's, this one at first, a lot of people will, the, the, the parlance is the a marathon is divided into two halves, like the first 20 miles and the final six. And, oh. and, would you would you identify your book writing process as like that final like that second half being so close to the end that final 10k or whatever it is was like this really laborious exhausting push just to get to the finish line a hundred percent especially because I want to say I had about 70 to 75 percent of the book done before I went back to work and then I didn't finish the draft for another like six months. So <laughs> while I got a, a good chunk of it done, you know, during those six months of writing, I would say the last little bit, which was not that much, took me as much like the same amount of time to get that done because I was 
and I'm I'm obviously a unique case. Not everybody has to go back to work or, you know, maybe somebody's been working the whole time while they've been writing the book. But, you know, this was a very unique case for me. And so because of that, yeah, it was that little that last little bit of writing felt so much more arduous because it was this new writing situation um, purely on weekends. All of my weekends were, were now booked, you know, for the foreseeable future. And it took the same amount of time to get all of that done, probably even longer, I would say, because um, I, I think I turned it in in May and I went back to work in October. So, yes, it was definitely the, the, the last push to get it done. And I remember you know, I would finish one chapter and I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm just so close. But then I would remember, oh, I forgot I have this section I have to finish or I forgot about this section. You know, like it would each moment you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm so close. And then you'd forget you'd remember a part that you forgot that still was incomplete. Mm -hmm. And so it was just kind of, you know, taking it day by day and uh, while you were, you felt so close, you were, you also felt so far because there were still all these, these loose ends that you needed to tie up. Of the many things that keep me awake at night w with respect to the book writing is, um, is it's not just the research. Like I'm okay where I know where the stones are and not to leave stones unturned. What keeps me up at night a lot of times is, not knowing certain what certain stones are, you know, like mm. like I've spoken with some people and they point me to a certain archive or a magazine that I had never even heard of and never had found if it wasn't for them telling me about it. I'm like, damn it, how many of these stones do I just not know are there to then overturn and dig up whatever mm -hmm. I can? And so you're, I'm just constantly worried that. I'm I I am just not gonna find those, and then deadline's gonna come, and it's like, ah, oh, damn! There was there was a br brilliant little uh, library over there that had s stuff, or this random person online has some letters that I would have I just didn't know to ask. It, did that? Yeah. Did you run into that degree of uh, panic? A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. Because I I did have some access issues with this book, and so. I've, I've even learned things after the book has come out where I was like, oh man, I would have loved to put, oh, <laughs> put that God, in that's there. Be you the know? Worst. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the book is over 400 pages, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, there's just, you know, and but I think that's like any book, right? I, the, these stories are so big and so complex. It's impossible. I mean, even this version of the book was supposed to be longer because I had even more details about their early childhoods. And, you know, my editor came in and was saying, you know, we don't need all of this much, you know, you have six women that you're profiling and think about, you know, think about movies, you know, you don't, you don't start with them in grade school, you drop in at the moment that, you know, the story needs to start. And so that was, you know, I had to cut a few darlings there because I had all these great details about them as young kids. So, uh, you know, even this book, there's still details I could have put in that I didn't. So, yes, it has been annoying to to hear things or see or find things uh, that I would have put in, but they're minuscule in the in the long term scheme of things. And so that's kind of what I think about when I do hear that thing or I find that thing. And, you know, it's just like, oh, well, it was a nice detail, but the book is pretty complete as is. 
Uh, you bring up a, a great point about, you know, be it backstory, childhood or stuff, uh, stuff of that nature. And your editor saying, well, think of movies, you know, you don't start there. And so that brings up a good point about entry points and how you get into a story. And uh, so how did you arrive at how you got into this to, you know, kind of just to let it sort of take off on its own? Yeah, actually, I would say one of the great things, what pieces of advice my editor gave me before I started writing was to think of it like a movie or think of it like a screenplay. And rather than kind of do these information dumps that I think nonfiction can get into. And to be fair, there are a few times where I had to information dump. It just wasn't, it was not avoidable. Um, but you know, to, to think of it as a series of scenes tied together. And so that was really, it was great advice. It was really hard to follow, especially with a, a history like this and people remember things differently and, uh, you know, people don't remember things at all. You know, one of the things, uh, I really tried very hard and maybe somebody will come up to me later and tell me that I missed it. I missed the detail that would have led me to this, but I really tried to find where Judy Resnick was on the day of Sally Ride's launch because, um, there was a, there's a moment in, uh, so Lynn Scher wrote the, uh, the kind of like stand, the go-to biography about Sally Ride. And in that book, she details, you know, she had an interviewed Anna Fisher and Anna had talked about, um, you know, over, she was the, the lead astronaut sports person during Sally's flight. And she had to oversee, the controls and the switches in the cockpit uh, ahead of Sally's flight. And I was, and she was pregnant at the time, very pregnant at the time. And I just thought what an incredible vivid image to start the book on, you know, a pregnant astronaut overseeing the shuttle that would take the first American woman into space. I just thought that was brilliant. And so I knew when I, when I had that set in my mind, I knew I, wanted to detail where all of the six women were on the day that Sally's flight took off. And so I had everybody, I knew where everybody was except for Judy. And uh, I asked everybody that could possibly have known. And sadly, nobody remembers. So, you know what? I, I, I've looked for documents. I looked for art, you know, newspapers, um, I just couldn't find it. So uh, that was, you know, that was a, a, a hard point. But I handled it in the book where I was, you know, I said, it does, you know, depending on where she was that day, she might have been in Cape Canaveral. She might have been watching it, you know, somewhere else. Um, so there are ways around it. Um, but, you know, to your point that those were there were certain moments where when I came across them, I would say, oh, that's how I'm going to open that chapter or, oh, that's how I'm going to close that chapter or oh, this is how I'm going to weave something in to another section, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, when, when those moments did happen, they were like, it was like lightning, you know, struck. And it, there's no greater feeling when you, when you know, when you finally figure out, oh, this is how I'm going to piece these sections together. And so those moments I would say are probably my most, the, the most favorite part of writing the book for me. Oh, that's great. And you, you bring up something I love talking about too, which is endings, you know, that could be chapter endings or book endings or whatever. It's uh, for, for me, I'm always on the lookout for like a really good knockout 
ending. And the earlier I can find it, the better. Because to me, it's like planting a lighthouse way out in the distance. And it's like, okay, now I have... I have something to orient my horizon or like, you know, mm-hmm. my, my navigational equipment too. And, uh, you know, for you, is that something that you're just attuned to um, always on the lookout for? And when you find it, you're like, Oh, awesome. Now I, I, I have, I have a sight line now. Yeah. Yeah. I would say my favorite, mo- my favorite things to do were to find the openings and endings of chapters just because, yeah. And then, then I felt like, okay, I have my starting point and I have my ending point. And all I got to do is just follow the journey from point A to point B. And that that was probably what kind of, whenever I was creating a chapter, I would usually think about, okay, how am I going to open it? What scene? Because I always like to open a chapter with a scene as much as I can. And that would also kind of get the juices flowing. So if I just picked a scene to start on, then I felt like, oh, I've, I've, I've opened the door to this chapter. It's not so intimidating to me now. You know, I have my opening. So all I have to do is just keep going. Yeah. And sometimes what happens too is merely you might not feel like you have enough research, let's say, to carry the day, carry the chapter or certainly carry a certain significant portion of the book. But you start writing anyway. And when you're writing, I I liken it towards um, to like laying down road. Over the course of laying down road, you start to see where the potholes are. And then those potholes tell you, oh, I can go to that person or maybe that newspaper or that search and patch up that hole. Is that something you experience? Yeah, definitely. Or and yeah, I would often (laughs) I would often leave the potholes in the chapters. Yeah. You know, so I you know, I knew I knew one section was going to occur but I didn't know how I was going to get there. So I would just kind of, you know, put stars or, you know, some kind of placeholder in there, go flesh out the section that I knew I needed to set to flesh out. And then I would um, go back to it. However, I would say it did catch, catch up with me. If you remember uh, towards the end, when I realized that certain sections still needed to be finished, yeah. those were often the sections that I realized, oh, I hadn't properly done a transition between this section and the last section. So <laughs> um, while while it did help me, you know, keep things for- moving forward, it was kind of those last potholes were probably the hardest to fill in <laughs> towards the end. <laughs> Yeah, and I've been building in uh, redundancies into my whole process here, and that requires okay. As I as I'm writing, I'm also reading and rereading my transcripts and my omnibus spreadsheet, and I know invariably I'm gonna have forgotten to put something in, and I'm gonna be so familiar. My hope with the manuscript as I start to read it all my transcripts that it's just like, oh, wait, I didn't use that thing, and now I'm going to backfill it over here. But it's like a kind of a constant circle of redundancy to make sure I don't miss anything. Is uh, Did you experience something of that nature as well? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, speaking of things that I should have put in, I went back and looked at some transcripts recently, just curious about something, and I stumbled upon a really great quote that I was I was thinking, man, I could have put that in too. So it just goes to show that books are, you know, they're never quite done. And even though we are forced to finish them and 
there's there's hundreds of roads that you could take to get to finish the book. So I'm trying not to put too much pressure on myself for it being perfect, you know? Um, and there, like I said, there are so many different details you could have added. Would it have made, made or broken the book? I don't, I don't think so. Um, it just would have been a different, unique detail, but, um, ultimately I think the bulk of the stories are there and, um, yeah, I'm still finding stuff that I, cause I just, I had so much, you know, uh, interview transcript to go through. I tried to highlight and, you know, remember the sections, but when you have so much material, stuff, stuff just inevitably falls through the cracks. Yeah. And, uh, my friend Bronwyn Dickey, she, uh, when I talk to her sometimes just about various book angst over the course of the project, you know, she, she's very quick to say like not to put too much pressure on yourself. Like don't think about writing the definitive book. Just know that your book right now is, is just along a river. Like you, you're the next one in line or, or you're just standing on the shoulders of whoever came behind you. And then someone down the road might be standing on your shoulders and they'll find new stuff and stuff. So just write like the, the best you can and in the current moment and, Stop trying to put the pressure on yourself to be the definitive biography of so-and-so. And that, that kind of takes the pressure off, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would be remiss not to mention that, you know, this book would not have been possible if it hadn't been for the people, the chroniclers who came before me. You know, there have been so many great biographies and histories that have been done on this time period, autobiographies from some of the astronauts themselves. And so, yeah, it's just, I just kind of see the six as one chapter in a long line of chapters about this era in uh, the space program. And some of the, like one of the, just of the more bonkers facts that came out just in reading the book too, just something I had highlighted. It was like, it took just, you know, when a shuttle was in flight, it took them just eight and a half minutes to cross the entire At- Atlantic Ocean. And it just like blows my mind the sheer speed that they're that they're uh, that they're hitting uh, up there. It's just it blows my mind half of the like all the all of this stuff, really. Yeah, I mean, that's most most launches to get to orbit usually happen in under 10 minutes. So, you know, <laughs> it's just and I hope that that is stuff that people take away. Um, one thing I pride myself on as a journalist, uh, a space journalist is explaining space in a way that people can understand and helping them to learn new things and not make it feel intimidating for them. I feel like space can be a little scary for folks just because it seems so technical and lofty (laughs) pun intended. Uh, (laughs) but I hope that I write, I was really trying to write in a way that made it accessible for people. And, you know, it's really hard because when it, I, you know, I mentioned it in the book, these people talk in acronyms. They don't actually talk in, <laughs> like you or I, it's an engineer speak and mm-hmm. it's easy to fall on those acronyms. So I was constantly trying to, you know, I couldn't avoid all of the acronyms, but I did try to check myself constantly to make sure I was explaining things in a way that, you know, a, an average reader could pick up on. Yeah. And there, there are moments too, where you ex- explain, you know, the, the shuttle launches itself and how there is that moment where the shuttle tilts backwards and 
it's very disorienting. They feel like they're going to fall back and fall off the launch yeah. pad, but that is a totally normal part of a, of a liftoff. <laughs> and that was something I learned myself uh, through this reporting process. You know, I have a background with the shuttle, but mostly as a child of NASA engineers. Uh, so while I did know some of these facts going in, a lot of this was learning for myself as well. So when I learned about the the twang, as it were, um, That's right, yeah. I was I was enamored with that. I was constantly watching videos of it, trying to learn more about it. Uh, and I had to explain it because I thought that was just so incredible. Like what a what a wild trick of the space shuttle to just kind of leap off the pad like that. I encourage you to go watch a video of it. It's really it was something else. So during the edit here and in hearing Lauren just say, you got to go watch that video. So I, I go to YouTube and I go space shuttle twang and it is spectacular. You see it rock and then the engines fire up. And if you're wearing good headphones, just listen to the sheer heavy metal force of those boosters. Holy shit. Go do it. Do yourself a favor. Go do it now. Just just do it. You're listening to this on your phone. Go go look it up. Yeah, there's another moment to uh, where you describe. Uh, I I believe I don't know if they were in. Gosh, I don't know if they were taking off or it was reentry or or whatever. But you had written like a small particle had penetrated partly into the window pane, and mm. uh, now my Kindle just shut off. Uh, uh, creating a tiny impact crater, and it's just like this yeah. itty bitty little thing. You know, the size of a thumbtack or something could like spell catastrophe and it's just you get a sense of how little these things are that can lead to just total disaster right and it's the same way for space today you know space debris has only gotten worse uh in recent years and it's something that the inter the astronauts and the international space station deal with on a constant basis they're constantly maneuvering the iss out of the way of a suspected space debris just in case it doesn't penetrate. And there have been various leaks on board the ISS. Granted, we're, you know, trying to figure out the source of those leaks, but it's possible they could be debris or micrometeoroids. And so it is, a, it's a constant concern. And uh, it's just a reminder that these vehicles aren't just floating in space. They're moving at, you know, upwards of 17,500 miles per hour. <laughs> and there's a, you know, a moment about midway through the book where you 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 really foreshadow the Challenger explosion by just dropping in this little grace note of O-rings and how important they are to the integrity of the vessel. And, you know, you just kind of leave it there. And I'm just like, OK, like that. I feel like that's going to echo later. And sure enough, it, it does. And I wondered at what point did you know you were going to like say drop that there? Was it like an early drafts or was it something you were like, Oh, in a rewrite, you're like, Oh, let's put this here. Cause it's going to echo later. I think it was going through the challenger or the Rogers investigation, uh, the Rogers commission investigation when I was learning, cause I was, I had known some of these facts, but not in depth. Uh, and so when I was, going through the challenger information and I was learning about these things that had happened on previous flights. And when I found out, you know, I was, it was, it was very early days of archival or of research. And when I was looking through the Rogers commission report and I saw that STS 41 D 
was one of the flights that had this abnormal behavior of the O-rings. And then I looked at it further and uh, don't quote me, but I think it was what the first time they had a, had blow by, right. Or where the, the first ring had just completely let gases through. I just thought, wow, what a awful, you know, tragic coincidence that that happened on Judy's flight. And yeah, it was, it was really once I was kind of diving deep into that part of the research that I was like, you know, I think it's important to foreshadow this here in her chapter because it it is going to play a significant role later on. Yeah, and I didn't know the that Judy Resnick was on the Challenger uh, uh, mission in 1986. I guess it would have been, and um, and I was wondering, I'm like, what you know, what role the Challenger explosion might might play in this book? As I was kind of like going through the timeline of how the book was unfolding. I'm like, all right, there hasn't, we, we're, we're not in 1986 yet. And then all of a sudden, like certain missions are getting punted and then down the road. And then all of a sudden we're in 86. I'm like, okay, I think it's gonna, it's and definitely with that O-ring thing. I'm like, okay, how are we going to get there? And then sure enough, one of the six happens to be on that terrible, terrible flight. And it's just like, I, I wonder for you, like when you, you know, you're on a collision course with that, that moment, you know, how are you, thinking about it as you're looking to retell it. Yeah, I actually put off that section for a really long time just because knowing what was coming and how tragic it was, I was, you know, it's just very difficult to put yourself in those final moments with them um, because they do, they do, there is a transcript that explains, you know, some of the things they were saying before, you know, they launched or yeah, while they launched and, you know, it's just knowing what's about to happen to them was really awful. And so, yeah, it just, I, it, it was, I, I hate to say it this way. It was an easy section to write because there was all of this detail, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure I did it justice and, you know, handled it delicately. And so that I just kept skipping over that part. In fact, I started I started the part of the reactions of the other five women well before I wrote about the challenger, you know, the lead up to the challenger accident itself, because I felt more comfortable in their reactions because they were, you know, they were so vivid and they remember them so well. Those were those moments that were kind of like those flashbulb moments that they like everybody, everybody in the astronaut corps remembers exactly where they were when challenger happened. So everyone has a really vivid memory of that moment. So though that that I, I felt much more comfortable in and uh the the lead up to Challenger itself was definitely a difficult portion to dive into. You know, and, and of and of course like Sally Ride becomes the first American woman to, you know, be on a space mission and go to outer space. Um maybe like speak about the the blessing and the curse that that was for any of the six, but it's spe- specifically for Sally. It really was. I mean, that is, you described it so well. It, it is a blessing. It was a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. Um, I think all of the women were competitive. And so they all were in a competitive group, the 35 new guys that they were, the group of astronauts they were in. And so they're, even if they didn't want to go first, they certainly wanted to fly as soon as they could. So, you know, grappling with that and not being 
not being able to fly as soon as possible was probably difficult for some of them. And so for Sally, the blessing was that, you know, she got to fly before most of her coworkers and she got to go into training. Uh, But then, you know, there's much of her chapter. It's why I have really two chapters about her, the lead up to her flight and then the flight and the aftermath, because most of it, you know, when she came back to earth, that protective barrier that she had when she was training really disappeared and she had to, you know, really deal with the public kind of wanting a a piece of her. And NASA was kind of obliged or they wanted to, they were open to sharing Sally with everyone because they wanted to celebrate this great achievement, right? So they would often encourage her to do these talks, take, you know, accept these invitations and whatnot. Um, But over time, it really became very burdensome for her, especially as an introvert and someone who didn't really seek the spotlight for, you know, much of her life. Uh, You know, she wound up seeking therapy for it at one point. But, you know, it also did shape the rest of her her life, you know, uh, through becoming the first American woman in space. She met lots of children and she realized that you know, working with children and inspiring children and young girls really was uh, something she wanted to dedicate her life to. And so that's ultimately what led her to create Sally Ride Science, that nonprofit through UC San Diego. Uh, So while it was this kind of tumultuous time in her life, uh, it really did end up shaping the latter part of her life uh, and and directing her on her chosen path. And maybe give us a sense of the the puzzle of sending a crew of whatever it is five to six people into outer space and the chemistry it takes to to make sure that that is a har- as harmonious a group as possible yeah i mean that still is a bit of a mystery in terms of <laughs> each individual crew you know um i think when they came to selecting the astronauts for the program, you know, one of the key traits that they were looking for was team players, obviously, just because these crews were going to be much bigger than crews of the past. And also they were looking for people who were interested in a diverse range of fields. So for instance, Sally was both an astrophysicist and a tennis player. And that, that kind of combination was something that the selection board really favored because it showed that she, you know, was well-rounded and could work in various different fields. And for this role, this mission specialist role that they were recruiting for, you know, that those astronauts had to wear lots of different hats. You know, they were either going to be working on experiments, uh, they were going to be deploying satellites, working with different types of payloads. So it was very important to them to find people that you know, were interested in and stuff beyond their own chosen profession. And then additionally, uh, I, this is the part I loved a lot. You know, it was the trait of patience was very important. And I think it's, it's a reminder that astronauts, you know, they spend very little amount of time actually in space. Most of their time is spent on the ground, preparing to go to space, helping others go to space. And so, it was very key to find people that they thought were willing to wait and wouldn't, you know, just 
up and quit when they didn't get the selection that they wanted. And so all those trades combined, I think, is what they were looking for when they first were selecting people. And then the hope was, you know, they found the right people that could be mixed and matched for each mission uh, so that they could really create all sorts of different crews whenever um, the astronauts were on board. Now, as we kind of, uh, you know, yeah, uh, sort of our conversation coming to a, to a close, running out of running out of time. I need to get your impressions and your on the ground insights for when you uh, in, when you flew zero G. I watched <laughs> that video and I was like, nope, nope, not. I am. I don't have the stomach to fly from Eugene to Seattle, let alone do what you did there. <laughs> um, I. I would say if anyone has the opportunity to do that, I, it's, it is expensive. I will say. Um, okay, well, Lauren ain't kidding. It is expensive. The zero G experience, five hours approximately, fifteen parabolas. Look it up. Nine thousand seventy U.S. dollars. So, start saving up your allowance. But it was such a great experience and it was it really is the very smallest taste of space that you can get uh, without actually, you know, leaving the atmosphere. <laughs> so um, I really enjoyed it. I if I ever have the chance to go again, I'd 100 percent do it. Definitely felt a little nauseous toward the end. Uh, I think my body was like, OK, that's enough. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I I did not throw up, so I did not live up to the vomit comet name but i did i mean it was an incredible experience yeah that was uh yeah watching you go through that i was like oh boy uh, it was like well, what's kind of what's trippy is that it, they're able to simulate the the mars gravity lunar gravity and then zero gravity so that that must have been pretty wild too. be like okay this is this is interplanetary in a in a, in a way <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what are your your thoughts on commercial space flight for of the of the SpaceX in the Virgin uh, Galactic and Blue or whatever the hell Bezos's thing is? <laughs> you know what, what's I mean. What's your feeling on that these days? Well, I just, all I like to say is that it's a very exciting time to be a space reporter. As you mentioned, there are numerous companies working to send people to space or send new payloads to space or try and, you know, create new machines or new capabilities that we'd never even dreamed of, you know, many years ago. So uh, definitely keeps me on my toes. There's, you know, space, the space industry is an industry like any other in the U.S. So, just like the tech industry, there's all sorts of promises and there's all sorts of, you know, wild speculation. And it's our job to kind of wade through that and have a measured take on what actually, you know, is happening, what's realistic, and also to keep an eye on companies behaving badly and how they treat their employees and things of that nature. So, you know, just as as these companies expand and as the space industry expands, uh, there's gonna, there's just plenty to focus on, and and it's gonna keep me on my toes for a very long time. I'm kind of glad you brought that up because, uh, yeah, I'm primarily a sports writer, and so it's like I'm sure a lot of a lot of people from the outside looking in might say like, oh, covering the World Series or Super Bowl, that must be great. But like 99% of it is like a lot of minutia and a lot of 
boring stuff. And especially if you're like a small peanut sports writer like I am, oftentimes it's like covering very small local things, but also keeping your eye on various other non-glorious, unglorious, inglorious things. So I, for, for you too, like a space shuttle launch is like, that's a kind of a big deal, but 99% of your job is focusing like labor issues in space, I imagine. Yeah, I actually say that just kind of like with the astronauts and how going to space for them is such a small part of their job, you know, going to space or covering going to space is such a small part of my job. I feel like a lot of it is the buildup toward these missions, the promise of new missions and, uh, you know, how that has an impact on the future of space travel moving forward. So yeah, going to space is such a small part of it. I mean, it's definitely becoming a bigger and bigger part of it as we go to space more and more. But, you know, in terms of the things that we report on on a daily basis, launches are kind of a small, small part of that. Very nice. Well, Lauren, as I bring these conversations down for a landing, I always love asking the guest, you in this case, for a recommendation of some kind for the listeners. And that can just be anything you're excited about. Uh, that you'd want to share with them and maybe uh, have them experiment with? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> well, I guess I'll bring it back to space. Uh, one thing I like to talk about with promoting the book is, you know, it's a great time to be thinking about uh, women in the astronaut program because NASA is looking to go back to the moon with its Artemis program. And one of the stated goals of that program is to send the first woman and the first person of color to the surface of the moon. Uh, through Artemis. Uh, they've set a very ambitious deadline of 2025. I don't think anyone thinks that's realistic, but it is something that they're actively working toward. And so it will be a great, it's a great program to follow, especially for a reporter. And so I think over the, in the coming years, there's going to be a lot of really exciting milestones uh, for both people to cover and to witness on the ground. Your next book, question mark? <laughs> I am taking the rest of the year to relax uh, and have the one job. You know, I like to say I was working two to three jobs there for a while. So I'll just do the one job for now. And uh, then <laughs> and then we'll see, you know, next year, I think we'll bring some change. I don't know what the change is, but we'll see if a book is part of it. Cool, man. Cool, dude. Thanks to Lauren for coming on the show. That was awesome. Name of the book, again, is The Sixth, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts. Lauren and I share the same agent, wouldn't you know? In the intro, I teased a riff about how threading or tweeting or just social media in, in general uh, is no substitute for the work. It can feel like work and that you fool yourself into thinking it's all about the brand or the platform building. It's a waste of your time if you think that's gonna get you published. Getting good at the threads will not land you the book deal you want. It's not gonna sell books. The constant barrage of people trying to hawk their shit on social media. I mean, I guess it builds awareness in the same way you drive by a billboard, even though you're never gonna go call that attorney or get uh, you know, dental implants from that guy, but you see him all the time. Here's the only way you're, you're, you're going to sell books. All right. Take it from someone who has not sold a lot of books. Make something so good that other people talk, talk about it. 
you know, write a book so good that I buy it, but I also buy three extra copies from my friends. Let the readers talk amongst themselves on social media. You, you don't need to be there. You know, let, let the readers hang out there because you're too busy writing another book. But how do I let people know it even exists? Well, you can do in-person things. Ideally, you've spent years cultivating a newsletter base of people who genuinely want to hear from you directly. They subscribed to things that you're doing. They're into you. You're not trying to just spam them with a thread. I'm not suggesting you don't post on social about you know, your book or an event, but maybe consider posting nine times about someone else and once about you. And maybe don't do these god-awful performative things of your writing routine and just maybe write a book that begs to be shared. You know, I hate, I hate the pictures of people that clearly like lean their phone like across the room yeah, to get a picture of them like staring contemplatively at their compute at their laptop. And it just it comes across as so phony. Don't turn your life into this curated reality show to prove how authentic you are when in fact it ends up just doing the opposite. You know, do what you set out to do. That was like published writing. Expressing your thoughts in a way that is of service or at least entertaining to a readership. This is how people then seek you out. I mean, Gabrielle Zevin, she's not on social media, but she is a writer who's peop who's, who, who people want to read. This is how you grow an audience without the algorithm. All social media ends the same. It all slouches towards the same end game eventually. But you... You can be timeless, be searchable, be seek outable. It's slower. It will feel like it's not working. As Seth Godin says, drip by drip, that bucket does fill up over time. Another analogy, another metaphor. It's like crockpot cooking versus fast food. You know which one has more depth of flavor. Your reputation will grow as an inverse relationship to the time you spend on social media. I'm telling you, you want people... To know you as a great writer, not because you dunked on someone on threads or Twitter and got more likes. That stuff just gets washed away in the ocean of the in, the infinite scroll. But a book, a documentary, a movie, an essay, a podcast. These are pieces of work that ideally have meaning and staying power. Don't lose sight of that. Stay wild, CNFers. If you can do, interview. See ya.